Yeah. You can't bury alive anything that was ready to die. You can't clip wings made of fire. That's God's work. The Phoenix Saga continues. Absolutely crazy track. That's that motivation track, that banger banger. That's that mm -hmm. fresh off of the Maja, Nie Oli, Shamis DePaul, featuring Sandosh Naranen and Navs 47. On the hook. Lyrics brought to you by the one and only Aribu. Oh, yeah? Yes, sir. Crazy. Oh, jeez. Absolutely crazy. That combination oh, right there God. is elite. Yo, this track, it slaps. There's a video for this track, too. Visual slap. Absolutely crazy, man. And it was actually featured in a brand new movie, an oh, yeah. Aria movie, actually. Yes. Okay. Sarpat uh, Parambare. That's right. Sarpat Parambare. It's on a, Netflix. It's an interesting name, but it's a sick movie. Oh, you it watched is, it? it is. It's a good movie? It's on Amazon Prime, actually. Not oh, sorry. Not Amazon Prime. That's absolutely right. Exclusive to Amazon Prime. And nice. I think uh, Parambare obviously referring to... Uh, this movie is actually a boxing movie, but uh, there's yeah, a lot of cast system references uh, in the movie with the, the various... Uh, groups that are representing, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, the sport and uh, and are competing. It's like a bunch of clans. Yeah, and it's it's, it's box. It's pretty much it's, it's, it's a full boxing because movie. It's, yeah? a, it's a boxing movie, and then they touch on like, you know, when when the white man was in in India, in elite. yeah, they they had boxing, yeah. and then left behind, uh, you know, they left behind the sport, obviously. Yep. So then these people have continued on, and then they have different different clans, and um, mm. it's jokes too because like in the movie they talk they touch on like you know this guy. That was the first guy to beat the white man. You know? Oh, no, yeah. <laughs> so, sick movie. This is like based in the 1970s as well. In the so, 70s, yeah. yeah. Oh, nice. So, we're like, like maybe a couple of years fresh off the, the, the British leaving India. So, yes, it has exactly. a lot of history involved as well, I guess. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, slight slight little uh, references, yeah. for sure. There's yeah. even cut scenes from uh, older um, news publications, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They did, they did something interesting though in the movie that I, I don't know if this was uh, appropriate. I don't know how I feel about it. Yeah, okay. The scene where they use this song. Okay. They use a version that's not Navs 47 and SVDP. Bro. Oh, no way. That's yeah, right. I'm like, what the heck's going on here? Same, yeah. same beat and everything. But it's, it's the same it, song. It's, it's actually exactly. Yeah, it's the same oh, song, yeah. Yeoli. It was actually just sung in Tamil by Santosh Naranen himself. Oh, so is the, it? The version that was in the movie is actually just Santosh Naranen. Oh, no way. But super, super sus for sure. Yeah, but the best best version, they kept it for the you know the end credits. Exactly. And it was a, you know, I never watched a, a whole movie's end credits for the most part. Yeah. Ever. <laughs> Unless it's a Marvel Unless movie. Unless the Marvel movie, you get to fight yeah, it. Yeah, of course. But this one, I just sat through because like... They doing like cuts of like yes. old boxer like images and oh, like newspaper no clippings, but they also like play this track and it was sick. The movie was Crazy. sick too. Like no lie, think, they did yeah. a great job. I think I, I'll go give that a shot because the last uh, boxing town movie that I watched was Batri and that was a fire movie. Batri, so. yeah, Batri, <laughs> oh traveling. But right now, yes, sir. I just want to say. This movie was a fire movie. Speaking so. of traveling, <laughs> we got a very, very special guest in the building, ladies and gentlemen, and mm -hmm. she has written an extremely, extremely successful book, yeah. to say the least, on traveling. We got the one and only Sharon Bala in the building, the author of The Bold People, a number one national bestseller, yep. featured on Canada Reads and you know, getting a number of awards for this book. Yep. Uh, Sharon has uh, definitely told a great story. It's actually uh, about the MB Sun Sea. So a uh, ship that landed uh, off the coast of British Columbia That's back right. in 2010. That's right. Following uh, the Sri Lankan Civil War. So, of course, we're not going to waste any more time. We're going to jump straight into it. Sharon, how are you? 
Great. How are you? We're good. We're, we're good. doing so good, Kachiran. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, we really do appreciate it. Uh, of course, The Bold People, the book has been uh, written back in 2018, a uh, story that came out a few years ago, but definitely an important story to tell. So, Sharon, thank you so much for joining us today to discuss the novel. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself for uh, the listeners who uh, don't know who you are and uh, haven't heard of the book before? Yeah, so I'm Sharon Bala. I'm the author of The Boat People, which is a novel which begins um, with the arrival of a cargo ship on the west coast of um, Canada. And this cargo ship is full of just over 500 refugees who've left Sri Lanka at the end of the Civil War. They're all Tamil, and they've come here seeking asylum. And what they find is something quite different. Um, so I was really trying to... Um, get at this idea that we have or this myth that we have of Canada as a very open and generous country. And what I was really trying to show is that sometimes, yes, we are. And in other cases, we really are not. Um, so I was trying to kind of complicate that narrative of the country and doing it through the lens of these people on this one boat. Um, yeah, and the book came out in 2018 and it had uh, really pretty surprised by how much success it had. Um, which I think was mostly down to publishing house doing really excellent publicity and marketing. Um, and now I'm working on other things. Um, I also write short stories. Yeah, and I'm working on a second novel. Nice. Uh, yeah, definitely. Ex I think uh, uh, the book doing excellent is an understatement at this point in time. Uh, it's, it's been doing phenomenal. And uh, we know that this is your debut uh, novel. Can, so can we get a little bit about uh, how you found influence uh, uh, on writing a book and your first book being The Boat People? Yeah, so I started really uh, with short stories, um, which are I think that's the way a lot of people um, when they're, who are writing fiction begin with short stories because they're short and they're something that you can workshop in classes and it feels um, like almost low risk because I always consider short stories as sort of experiments, like they're little laboratories where you're trialing something, either um, a perspective or a certain kind of character or you're trialing different ways to tell stories in terms of plot and story arc or you're working on dialogue, right? Um, and if something doesn't work out, it doesn't really matter because it's only a short story. You can throw it away. Um, and I say this as if short stories are easy to write. They're actually much harder than novels, but no one tells you that when you're first starting. <laughs> so I had written a number of short stories um, and had some success with getting them individually published, and then I, some of them won awards. And um, I had sort of finished... Uh, a number of them enough to put together into a collection and I had submitted it to an unpublished manuscript award. And then I thought, okay, what next? I need another big project. And I thought, okay, well, I feel like it's time to work on. So if a, if a short story is like a sprint, a novel is a marathon. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I had trained enough to then work on a marathon. And in some of the short stories I had been exploring, um, I really like writing linked short stories, you know, where the characters uh, recur. And one thing I was really working on, so I live in St. John's. I, I grew up in Ontario. I'm really far from my family, my extended family, mm -hmm. all the people I grew up with. And so I was really sort of, I think because of feeling a bit homesick, I was writing a lot of stories about, um, about Sri Lankan Canadians. Mm -hmm. And many of them were linked. And I had this whole like big cast of this one kind of sprawling Sri Lankan Canadian family. And I thought, oh, it'd be kind of fun to revisit them, but in the context of a novel. And what I really wanted to 
um, explore was the differences between different generations. So the generation who came to Canada as adults who made that choice versus the generation who were born elsewhere but raised here like I was versus the young generation of children who are being raised completely in a Canadian context, have never lived anywhere else and might even have one parent who's not Sri Lankan at all. And so I wanted to kind of look at these three generations. This is, this is originally what the boat people was supposed to be. It wasn't going to be called the boat people. I didn't know what it was going to be called. Right. It's going to be set in the you know GTA. And then I started this in 2013, mm-hmm. and the MV Sunsea and the Ocean Lady had come in 2010 and 2009, mm-hmm. and I had been thinking a lot about that, and I was thinking, well, it would be interesting if there was a boat that came on the other side of the country and it became a talking point and a way to sort of explore how these different family members see themselves or don't in the people on that boat and what they think, and are they all they might not all be in agreement necessarily that those people should be allowed to stay, right? Mm-hmm. And so originally the boat was really on the periphery. Um, but then at some point I thought, well, it'd be interesting to have one of the characters be one of the people on the boat. And then once I did that, it's like the whole story was hijacked by Mahindan, my main character, the the person who became my main character. He really just demanded, and this happens a lot with books. You start writing something thinking it's one thing, and one character will just elbow in, and it really was Mahindan. And as I picked the whole story up and physically moved it to Vancouver, (laughs) so there are three point-of-view characters in the boat people. One is Mahindan, who's just arrived, the second is Priya, who is um, sort of born and raised Canadian mm-hmm. um, and is Tamil. And she's his um, one of the refugee lawyers for him. And really, the, if you've read the book, that's all that remains of that family. <laughs> it was going to be this huge, sprawling family. And now it's just really Priya and her brother and her mm-hmm. father and her uncle. And that's it. Um, but she was originally going to be like one of many, many, many. Interesting. Well, I think that's very yeah. reflective of uh, what the... Um, you know, real society represents at least in terms of Tamils in the GTA community. It's uh, it was very uh, sparred out at the beginning, right? When it's very little numbers of families that were traveling over before, um, you know, the war really escalated. And of course, like you said, mm-hmm. the MV Sunsea uh, was a Thai cargo ship that brought over 492 Sri Lankan Tamils uh, into British Columbia back in August of 2010. Um, so this, of course, was uh, nearing towards the end of the war, um, and, and just after. Um, in uh, in Sri Lanka, of course. So, had you had uh, heard of the uh, of the event prior to, or uh, was this something that you stumbled upon um, during your research? Um, how did that that story um, in real life really have an impact on you? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I heard about it as it was happening, um, and as it was happening, I had just moved to St. John's a few months before the boat came. The boat came in August. Um, I had moved here in January Mm -hmm. and I was watching what was happening from really like the very other end of the country. And I was thinking about how, you know, the North is such a small place. We must all be related, right? right. We must all be related. (laughs) And it's just dumb luck that geographically where I was compared to the people on the boat. um, It was just dumb luck that, my family happened to come in the mid-80s mm-hmm. at a time when Canada was in a good mood yeah. towards Sri Lankans. Yeah. 
um, you know, it was just dumb luck that my grandparents eloped and left Point Pedro and ran to Colombo. Mm -hmm. And therefore, my father, you know, grew up speaking all three languages and had a certain access to a certain amount of education and was able to leave before the war began. Like, all of that was just a role of the dice, right? Mm -hmm. And, And I had no part to play in that. But because of all of those factors, here I was in St. John's with citizenship, having come in a different time. And then just a couple of decades later, people from the same part of the world are coming to the same country that welcomed me, yeah. is now closing its doors to them. And so I was really thinking about this a lot. And um, I had gone to Halifax for work. And at this point, I wasn't a writer. I had gone to Halifax for work and I was at Pure 21, which is the... Um, immigration museum and I was thinking about so this was a place where literally most people were coming through before air travel was common right people were coming on boats and so like war brides and Hungarian refugees uh, you know fleeing the revolution people were coming through and we have here we have this national museum that celebrates that on one side of the country, you know, while on the other side of the country, we're closing our doors, right? Here we are celebrating on one side that right. we are mm-hmm. open and welcoming. And on the other side, it's like, no, not, not, no room for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it's crazy. You said, so, yeah. you know, your family came over in the mid 80s as well. And, um, yeah. you know, exactly where you are in Newfoundland uh, in 1986, uh, border Sri Lankan migrants uh, were yes. rescued off the coast of Newfoundland as well. Yeah. So it's kind of yeah. crazy how that whole story for you comes full circle, right? Yeah. And I didn't, so in 2010, I was a writer and I am not from Newfoundland, so I didn't know this story. But when I started working on it in 2013, uh, locals were saying, oh, you're working on a a story about boat people from Sri Lanka. Is it about our boat people? (laughs) So that's when I found out about that. And of course, right, because it's like the community is so small. Then later, an uncle of mine said that he had been an interpreter. Um, when these people came, I think he had flown down to St. John's because there was no one here, right, who could understand them. So he had been one of the people who'd flown down here um, to help translate. That's a, that, that is a crazy thing, too. Like, it's, it's interesting how Prodigy brought that up because it is, it is full circle. And I, I was thinking about that as, uh, as well earlier when you, when you mentioned you were looking for a boat on your side, but there was just uh, okay. about 30 years earlier. Yeah. When you touched on the fact that you know, you, you, your family came here early and then you had this, you know, your life that you were pretty much, pretty much Canadian and growing up here and for the yeah. most part, pretty, pretty privileged, right? Not uh, having to oh, yeah. go through what, we, what pe- most people went through back there. But then fast forward to this point in your life where you're now becoming a writer you still have back home on on your mind right so like how much importance was this you know like this this situation happening back home for you to then like you know turn it into a story and like tell that story to the rest of the world effectively i mean i think the situation in sri lanka was always there um and unlike in the book in my family you know we grew up not just with the immediate family or even the blood relations but like all of my parents you know, friends, so all my, like, aunties and uncles who are not, like, blood aunties and uncles, all the people they grew up with in Sri Lanka all came around the same time. And so I grew up as part of this bigger kind of family network and community. And, of course, all the adults were always talking about the troubles, unquote, back Mm -hmm. home. And then part of that was, like, what was happening in the present day. But part of that was also there's some memories of, 
of back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these stories were always kind of there, but it's, I don't know what your families are like, but it's not like they ever sat us down and said, now this is specifically what happened to us, yeah, exactly. or this is specifically yeah. what, you know, your grandparents who were left behind went through. Those stories I actually called my, so my mother is Bengalese, my father's Tamil. Mm-hmm. And I, when I was working early, when I was doing, working on the book, and I realized I was going to have characters who came, who were on the boat. I called my dad and I was just like, I had never asked you these questions. Like, you know, why did you choose Canada? Why, when did you know you were leaving? What about like, Appama and Appapa who were like, left behind like you know what about all of that and he told me you know about the riots in 58 he was 12 years old and those stories I had heard bits and pieces but not really um and so I heard them for the first time really when I was working on the book and that was I mean so interesting right because I guess parents don't want to tell us these things because they don't want to traumatize us or I don't know traumatize is even the right word. Mm-hmm. Cause it's not like, I don't really think Sri Lankan parents ever try to like cosset children from emotional trauma, you know, yeah. from like falling out of a tree. Yes. Like, you know, put a cap on to go outside <laughs> with wet hair, all that kind of nonsense, <laughs> but like, they're not really going to try to, but I guess, I don't know why they didn't ever sit us down and say, these are the horrors. Right. Um, the- but they don't, unless you ask, and I don't know why I never thought to ask before. I think we can definitely relate in that sense as well. Yeah. Um, I feel like, um, at least speaking for us three, like most of our parents definitely did chill us from some of the more details of the stories and what actually transpired. Sure. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think to a certain degree that uh, some of that could have taught us um, early on, you know, the importance of, uh, you know, certain values and um, really appreciating the opportunity that we have here as second generation, third generation Canadians. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and that's one thing I was trying to get at with the Grace uh, Nakamura character, who's the third point of view character. Her family is Japanese Canadian, and they've never talked on purpose. There has been this like purposeful silence about what happened during the Japanese internment. But one of the things that I um, came across in my research about that is that, at least in Canada, um, that Nisei generation, the generation who were children or who were born just after the Japanese-Canadian internment during the Second World War, um, grew up with parents who purposely never talked about what happened because it was such a loss of of faith as well as everything else. Um, And then as they grew up, particularly after their parents passed on, they really wanted to get back that history. But I I wondered about what the kind of long-term consequences intergenerationally is if you don't have that knowledge and then do you ally yourself? Are you more likely to ally yourself with the majority because you don't realize that your family was part of the minority once? Yeah. There's, I think there's like a uh, dark side to that. Yeah. That's crazy that you bring that up too, because you know how um, earlier too, you mentioned in the eighties when your family was coming in, yeah, the Canadian government was feeling, I guess, nice during that time Mm -hmm. but we we do have Mm -hmm. we do have a dark history in terms of like there's different communities that have come to canada and weren't embraced or accepted and they had a lot of trouble too right so i i I guess that's interesting a take that you did decide to put a japanese character in there because there's definitely other minority groups in this country who faced similar Similar uh, you know discrimination or or what have you and 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 we could relate on the on that level as well too right and in using 
those experiences we can then like unite and like work together and you know just this make this is our country now right so how do we make it a better place how do we open it up for yeah. them now new people coming in or more people who are trying to you know sur- ultimately survive right yeah and to that point yeah. uh sharon ball is uh book the bull people of course like she said mentions three characters of course mahindam being the main character uh a sri lankan refugee uh priya who is the refugee lore a second generation um tamil canadian um and of course grace nakamura who is the uh, adjudicator so to his point i mean of course uh not only have you featured a uh, another japanese character in this story to represent uh what they had gone through in the past uh you've also given her a significant role in really holding mahindan's fate at the end of the book as well right mm-hmm. and ultimately deciding uh what his life uh may hold whether that's in canada or back home in sri lanka again um so mm-hmm. what was the thought process behind that really uh in giving her that role specifically. Hmm. So I knew once I figured out that Mahindan was the main character and it was going to be a story about um these this group of refugees who were coming, I knew that he was going to be one voice, Priya was going to be the other voice, and that there would be a kind of adjudicator or quote unquote judge voice, someone who um held the balance of power. And I Once I moved the book physically to Vancouver, then I sort of because I grew up in Ontario, I didn't get a ton of West Coast history. So then I went and like looked at the history of Vancouver, and particularly I looked at who were the waves of people who came. And so I had considered um the Sikhs, and so I had thought about the Kamigato Maru as well, a boat of uh, mostly Sikh refugees who came who actually were um British citizens. coming to from one british colony to the other and seeking refuge and got turned away that's why one of the characters um amy singh is is seek but the the big thing that seemed to really loom large um over british columbia was the treatment of japanese canadians during the second world war and that's memory that i thought that the character should be japanese and then when i looked more into the history of not just the internment but how like the intergenerational effects over time it just seemed like such a you know you could say well the second world war was a really long time ago you know but actually the those long term effects are still lingering um and even when i was i don't know i think i was in my 20s uh people were just starting to get reparations for that you know and i think the apology for that had only just recently happened the comicato maru that apology happened very recently as well like in the last couple of years yes. last few years yeah it's chudo's government who did that yeah, yeah so i mean so that's why i chose um for grace's family to be japanese So obviously when it comes to you writing it is rel- a little bit relatively easy to write a fiction uh, novel but when it goes into uh relating to real life events there's obviously uh probably an immense amount of research that is involved so can you break down <laughs> like how is the process in uh, finding out like real maybe information from people who are maybe right on the boat Oh yeah okay so I had no access to anyone who was on either of the boats the Sunsea or the um ocean lady and the only way i could sort of get at any of their stories was just reading what was in the newspapers um and like radio and just the press basically and um for good reason they were kept anonymous um and i think how it happened was they would go to these hearings 
and they would only be referred to by a number, which is really, and they would all dress the same too, which is really dehumanizing in a way, it kind of strips you of your humanity, but in another way, it is there for a good reason because some of these people were deported um, and with good reason, even the ones who were not deported were probably worried about their families back home. So I would read a story about one person who said, you know, here is my story, here is what I went through to get here. And it would have like a little detail, like she claims to be a teacher, she claims, right? She claims to be a teacher in Sri Lanka, or she claims to be a librarian, or he claims to be a mechanic. And then I would keep reading as much as I could. And I would find another story about here is a man who was a mechanic. And I would never know if it was the same man. There was no way of knowing. So what I was eventually doing is just not looking at trying to figure out who they were, but more trying to trying to get at like, what is the way they tell their stories? And what is the way that I am reading it? Because of course, they're telling their stories in Tamil, someone is translating it. Then there's the reporter who's reporting it, who's choosing, you know, curating what parts to include. There's like this whole, there are all these um, almost like dirty panes of glass between me and the person and me and their actual story. And I was thinking about that too, and how the reader coming to it is getting all of this at even more of a remove. So I really had no access to any of the individuals on the boat. Even stuff I could get on the boat was just whatever was in the public record. And by that, I really mean just like the internet. Um, So so it was just imagination and a lot of thinking through what people might be going through. And then I was writing in 2013, 14, 15, 16, 17. I finished the book in nine months before it was published. And all that time, there were boats in the Mediterranean, right? right? And that's like all we were seeing in the news. Yeah. There were also boats um, going to Australia and New Zealand. And there are these, you know, the island of Manus and Nauru, oh, like two like hellish islands where Australia just like sends their refugees basically to die. And there were horrible stories coming out of there. People who were losing faith and just taking their own lives by walking into the ocean. Wow. Um, yeah. And I started to think about how, okay, I'm writing about this one fictional boat, about this one group of people who's coming from one island, one part, one tiny part of one tiny island. Mm-hmm. But really, this is a much bigger story, and their stories are so similar in so many ways. And so much of, so for example, there's a scene in the boat people where Mahindan is in a detention camp, in a prison camp uh, in Sri Lanka at the end of the war. The government forces have rounded up all the Tamils and shoved them in this place. And I had no access to any information about that place. But what I did have access to were um, radio interviews happening in the moment with people who were in refugee camps in, um, in Greece. And these are like Syrian refugees, right? Yeah. And they were being interviewed and there was just something so heartbreaking. There was this one camp where the, rep- the NPR reporter said, there's a rumor going around the camp and everyone is completely convinced that Secretary of State Hillary Clinton is coming to open this camp up and to let everyone go. And it was based on nothing but hope. And so I I took that and I put it into the boat people. Um, And, you know, there were similar stories, another one where it was like in Germany, and the rumor was Angela Merkel is coming and she's going to open this camp and one of these days she's going to let us all 
So, yeah. and we're going to be able to start our lives. And mm-hmm. I thought, well, this must just be what happens, yeah. right? Of course. How, and so, yeah. And so a lot of it was also just taken from other refugee stories. Every time, anytime I would read something about any group of people who were stuck in a place, stuck in limbo, it would inform the book. And it could be people from the past. It could be people in the present, in a different place. Um, and then the a big kind of tension in the flashback parts of the book are Mahindan and his wife and their friends. And they're constantly thinking, should we go? Should we stay? Should we go? Should we stay? And... A lot of that, too, was just me thinking, I was, you know, listening to these interviews with refugees from Syria in particular, who were talking about, they loved their home, they did not want to leave, and they did not know if things were going to get better. So they never quite knew when to, like, make the call on it. And sometimes it, the decision was taken out of their hands, because things just got so bad they had to go. Um, and, you know, then that, when it, that sort of helped me understand and I was thinking, too, of, like, what happens if something happens here? You know, at what point do I say I'm willing to give up everything I've built to go yeah. to a place where I don't speak the language or mm-hmm. know anyone? And it's, Yeah. It, so it, It's actually a very, like, that, that concept that you just mentioned, too, of, like, most people don't just up and leave, right? Like, there, there are... There are who people wants who, to go? Exactly. And, and, <laughs> Whoever wants to go. Yeah, exactly. And, and we're coming for for us, at least our people, for example, we're coming from a, an island, you know? Like, yeah. we, we're living yeah. island life, palm trees, and, you know, exactly. ocean breeze, right? So, <laughs> and there's quite a yeah. few references to that, of course, in the, in the Bo People book as well, right? Uh, Mahindan's very, like, clear and raw memories of, of being back uh, in Sri Lanka with his wife, where, you know, pre-war, um, they were living, living a little comfortably, but obviously on edge, just knowing that their family may be at risk given the situation and what was going on, right? Um, and I think we all see that here in our parents today too, um, as you know, second and third generation Canadians um, speaking on uh, what they would be doing if they were still home right now um, and, oh, where they, yeah. and what type of lifestyle they'd be, they'd be living, right? Yeah, uh, sure. Definitely a like lot more healthier long, and fruitful. Mm-hmm. For how long did my parents just keep referring to home? Mm-hmm. Right. Back, back home. It wasn't <laughs> just home. It was back home. Yeah, that's right. And... I that I think has changed, and I can't quite remember. I can't pinpoint exactly when it changed, but I mean, I had also in 2010, and so when I started working on the book in 2013, it was still pretty new. I had just uprooted my life and moved from like Ontario to, to Newfoundland, um, and it it was so disorienting and also really like complicated and difficult to move. <laughs> And uh, I was thinking about, like, what a privilege all my problems were, all how privileged all my, like, little problems were of moving and, yeah. how, you know. Um, but, yeah, people don't take these decisions to move. Most people don't take these decisions to move lightly, particularly when you live in a place and all of your ancestors, as far back as you can remember, are from the place. Right. And, you know, their ashes are scattered all over the place. And, mm-hmm. you know. Well, Sharon, let's talk about um, the success of the book, of course, because it was a riveting story that, uh, you know, told uh, many people, uh, of course, Tamils and non-Tamils, uh, what had really transpired um, to a certain degree with uh, Mahindan's story and how he really came to this country. Um, how has the book really been successful since 2018? Um, have you reached uh, anybody personally um, in terms of the story itself? Uh, and what have you been working on since? 
Yeah, the the book success was really unexpected because it was a debut novel, um, and because I'm just a person who has tries to keep my expectations low. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but there's no way to know how any book is going to do, particularly a debut where no one knows you, and it's not like readers are waiting for your next thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got super lucky with being on Canada Reads. I was just yes. that was just again like very very lucky and huge news. That's a big part of what sold the book um and then i was also lucky that the book came out in january when it's a kind of quiet time for books and then i had the whole year to like um promote the book which was great um but i'm you know i still get messages from readers which is lovely and i think now it's a lot of um uh young readers who are uh reading the book in high school or in university and coming Mm -hmm. to it fresh and um I always think, oh, the book came out, you know, in 2018, that was a while ago. But if you're a reader who's 18, you know, you were so young back then, Mm -hmm. you might not have. um, Yeah, so I I think one really nice thing, speaking with um, readers who are from the Tamil community in particular, is when they say to me that reading my book made them talk to their families to ask, you know, what did you go through? And then hearing, for them hearing those stories. Yeah, yeah, so that. That has been um, really nice. And then the other really nice thing is um, hearing from readers whose families are not from Sri Lanka, but from, say, somewhere else where mm-hmm. they were forced to leave, right. kind of uh, having those same conversations with family members. Um, I was doing an event out in Vancouver, actually, and a man came up to me at the book signing table and said, uh, you won't believe this, but I... so." One of the things that was happening, well, the whole time I was working on the book, was there was a case that was going up to the Supreme Court, a man who was being deported, one of the men on the ship. I think there were like three or four men on the ship, and they were about to be deported, and kind of a last gasp, last chance to take it to the Supreme Court and have the deportation order overturned. These things can go on for years and years. And so every couple of months while I was working on the book, I would Google it to see, like, has there been a ruling? Has something happened? And then finally, um, I can't quite remember when, but like I think it was after the book came out, uh, the Supreme Court ruled that to overturn all the deportations, or three of the deportations were overturned. So anyway, I was in this uh, signing books in Vancouver, and a man came up to me and said, I was on the jury. <laughs> and wow. then I said, what? I know. And so you know how I said I had no access to any of the people, mm-hmm. right? Well, he told me that as a juror, he had they had these big binders with every single person wow. who was yeah, on the ship, like all of that information. And I remember thinking, wow, what I would have done for that when I was researching. <laughs> yeah. But also, I'm really glad I didn't have that because, yeah. you know, those stories are not mine right. to mm-hmm. tell. And right. those are private stories and personal stories. And I'm actually really glad... Um, that I was forced to use my imagination. I think the book is actually just stronger for it. I mean, I think one day someone, at least one person, I'm sure, is going to write a memoir or one of their children will write a memoir and we will will have a real accounting for what happened on the Sun Sea. But, you know, my book is, I always say it's it's only inspired by. Right. Mm -hmm. um, And and anytime people come to me and and say it really seems like real life, I Mm -hmm. take it as a compliment (laughs) because it means I've done my job well. But if if it does seem like real life, it's only because these stories are so common and they are timeless in a way. And I was pulling from lots of different times and places. Yeah. 
So lastly, with that, uh, what kind of advice would you give to uh, maybe future writers that are going to be touching on similar topics and, uh, of course, like these kind of sensitive topics? What kind of issues or uh, struggles did you go through that you may recommend to like the next writer who's going to be touching on similar topics uh, and hoping to release their own novels? One continual struggle that I went through was that I was procrastinating without even realizing it on writing the difficult scenes, like the really hard to write, hard to stomach scenes. And I didn't realize I was procrastinating on them. Um, I just had all the scenes in between and none of those ones. And I had this call with my editors pretty early on where they said to me, so what happens between here and here? So for example, they said, okay, so, you know, talk about like, Mahindan and his wife, they have this kid. What's that like? Because their child is being born in the middle of a war. And I, you know, I knew what all these scenes were, were like because I had kind of imagined them. So I would tell these long stories, right? Mm-hmm. Or about how, like, you know, how Mahindan leaves, finally ha- is forced, the decision is taken out of his hands, and he's forced to leave Kilinochi. What's that like, that day where he leaves? And my editor said, oh, that's, that's great. Like, do you have that somewhere? Do you have that written? <laughs> <laughs> of course I hadn't because they're terrible I didn't want to write those scenes <laughs> yeah. or like the scene in, that I was just talking about in the prison camp I didn't want to write that scene mm-hmm. but I think um, one piece of advice is like if there's something that you're avoiding just you better just put your head down and do it <laughs> rather yeah. than writing around it um, and like really walk if you're going to if you're going to tell a story that has darkness you had better just walk right into it and, and like face it head on and don't try to away from it um, and then the other thing is is just to take so much care because once the book is out and it's in print you can't take it back um, so and you know just you just want to take care when you're telling these stories that they are as true and as accurate as possible and by that I don't even mean that you know, you're, if you're inventing characters, of course, they're not accurate to anything. They're just fictional. But you're talking about emotion and you're talking about conflict and you're talking about war. You want to be true and accurate to that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And of course, I yeah. think that justice was done in this book for sure. Once again, national number one bestseller uh, author of the book, The Bull People, yes. Sharon Bala. Uh, I'm going to leave our audience with one great quote that you brought to us from Martin Luther King Jr. right at the beginning of the book. Uh, We may all have come on different ships, but we're all in the same boat now. Uh, A very powerful quote by uh, Dr. King himself. Um, Would you like to tell us why you chose to use that specifically? (laughs) Uh, So the Dr. King quote, um, early on, early on, when I was thinking about the thematic elements of the book, I was thinking about how um, Canada is this land and different groups of people wash up on the land, right? So, like, the indigenous people came first, and then, I don't know, maybe the Vikings, and then the Europeans, and then, I don't know, the Chinese, the Japanese, the Sikhs, like, all these different groups of people are coming, and they're washing up on the shores. And um, and I was thinking about how, for a long time, before air travel, it was by boat, right? It was by boat. Mm-hmm. Everyone came by boat. So, like character of Fred Blair, who's like the odious politician. His people came from the UK by boat. He's also a boat person. (laughs) Everyone in the book, there's not a single indigenous character in the book. Everyone in the book is a boat person. Mm -hmm. Right? And I was thinking about how now the project of Canada is how they're going to live on this boat together. 
How are we going to live here together? How are we going to make it work? So that's why I chose that quote. But there was another quote that I found really early on, which was actually related to the Tamil refugees who came um, by boat to Newfoundland yes. in the 80s. So it was Brian Mulroney, who was the prime minister, and he got kind of dragged over the coals in the House of Commons when he decided to give all these people um, leave to remain, I guess. He said, oh, yeah, okay, they can all stay. I'll give them all refugee status. They can work on their permanent residency or whatever. Um, and, and many politicians were upset with this. And he said, if we err, let it be on the side of compassion. Hmm. And I had, I can't remember the full quote now, but I had it on a post-it on my court board the whole time I was working on the boat people. Absolutely. And I was thinking, I was thinking about like, so here are some boat people who come in the 80s. It's a conservative government at the helm. And this is what they say. And then the same group of people come to the other coast, um, you know, in 2010. It's a conservative government at the helm again. And they say something very, very different. Like, I cannot imagine anyone, I can't imagine Stephen Harper saying, if we make a mistake, let it be on the side of compassion. Mm-hmm. Right. I can't even imagine Stephen Harper saying the word compassion, yeah, honestly. <laughs> but, you know, I thought that would be a really interesting <laughs> uh, epigraph, is to have, like, Brian Mulroney. Um, but in the end, I decided I didn't like Mulroney that much. But I do like to often quote him because I think um, I think that is the Canada that I would like to aspire our country to be. Absolutely. And I think I have the quote here actually right for you. It's uh, from Byron Mulroney uh, in the book. Uh, the interpreter tells Mahindan, you have come to a good place. There's room for you here. Canada is now in the business of turning away refugees. If we err, let it be on the side of compassion. Mm-hmm. And of course, that was oh, Okay, so that, that uh, you've come to a good place. That's room for you here. I forgot about that. So that's actually... A quote that I saw on the wall mm-hmm. in 2010 at Pier 21, and it was uh, something that an immigration officer, like just an anonymous, you know, just like a paper pusher at right. the border who's like stamping everyone's stuff, like one uh-huh. of those guys, who might have even been a woman, I don't know, but like an anonymous person now whose name is lost to history said to, I think it was a, hun- a Hungarian refugee who'd come he said, you've come to a good place. There's room for you here. And I was, again, thinking it was 2010. It was, all, it was September 2010. And the sun had just come the month before. And I was thinking, have they come to a good place? Like, it doesn't seem like we want to budge over and make room for them. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, yeah, so that's where that quote came from. Definitely. Yeah, yeah and uh, it's, it's really hard to say, you know, um, what the country's status is at now, of course, given... Um, all the things that are going on with the indigenous communities in Canada as well. So, uh, yeah. you know, of course, we have uh, a good past and a dark past here in Canada. And, of course, a lot of it's coming to light now. But uh, for people like yourself, telling these stories definitely helps us, um, you know, conceptualize it more and uh, and spread uh, what needs to be told about the genocide to communities outside of our own as well. So uh, we'd like to thank you again, Sharon, for, for sharing your story. Mm-hmm. Um, once again, national number one bestseller, The Bull People, Sharon Bala, thank you so much for joining us once again today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the After Hour Show live on East FM 102.7. Every Friday night, 9 to 11 p.m., it's your boy, Prodigy. This is Cypher. This is Matt. And we're out. Peace.